You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series with professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer for the LLS. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. We'll be discussing everything you need to know about cutaneous lymphoma, including highlights of a research that was just presented at the United States Cutaneous Lymphoma Consortium annual meeting. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Francine Foss, who's a professor of medicine in the section of hematology and stem cell transplantation at the Yale University School of Medicine. She's also a professor of dermatology and the co-director of the lymphoma program at Yale. We're also joined by Dr. John Zick, who is a professor of dermatology and vice chair of clinical affairs and executive medical director of the dermatology clinic at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Uh, Francine and John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I have to say, this is like really a treat because I know, uh, John, I'm just meeting Francine. I know from about 15, 18 years ago when we did a somewhat similar show in New Haven, Connecticut for radio. So Francine, this is a real treat. Thank you. It's great to be here, Ken, and it's great to talk about our favorite topic, cutaneous lymphoma. Absolutely. So I want to ask you first, Francine, if you would, at a 60,000-foot level, frame a little bit for us T-cell lymphoma and then how cutaneous T-cell lymphoma fits into that. So the T-cell lymphomas are rare. There's only about 9,000 cases per year in the United States, and they include the aggressive T-cell lymphomas, which are the most common types, as well as leukemic types of T-cell disease, And then finally, cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. Within each one of these groups, there are a number of different diseases. But in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, the most common ones are mycosis fungoides and the Cesare syndrome, followed by the CD30 positive T-cell lymphomas of the skin. All right, thank you. So if it's 9,000 patients with T-cell lymphoma, how many patients with primary cutaneous lymphoma in the United States, just as a reference point? It depends on what statistic you believe and how good statistics are. And I'd like to get John's feedback on this from the dermatology point of view, because a lot of the numbers really depend on people getting biopsies, people coming in with various skin disorders and a dermatologist deciding that they need to get a biopsy. So if you look at the numbers, there are about 25,000 cases prevalence, but there are only maybe between five and 8,000 new cases per year. And John, I don't know what you think about that and if you think that the number is a low estimate. Thanks, Francine. Yeah, I do think that it's an underestimate of the prevalence of cutaneous lymphoma in the U.S. I know that the incidence of cutaneous lymphomas 
have been approximated and equal to thyroid cancer. And many people know uh, quite a bit about thyroid cancer, yet the cutaneous lymphomas are a mystery. But I think you touched on something really important, Francine, and that is because many of these patients are presenting to dermatologists and because they can mimic common skin disorders like eczema, psoriasis, even some very common skin cancers like basal cell carcinomas or squamous cell carcinomas, these diseases can be misdiagnosed or there could be a delay in diagnosis. And the other thing is that not every dermatologist is reporting their cutaneous lymphoma diagnoses to some of the SEER cancer registries. So I agree, it's probably underreported. John, let me ask you, uh, I'd love to hear some examples of patients in your practice who were felt to have a benign skin disease and ended up having a T-cell lymphoma. Absolutely. One patient comes to mind who was diagnosed with psoriasis for several years and was treated with some of the biologic response modifiers like the TNF inhibitors, and now we have IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors that are being used in dermatology. And it was only after the patient progressed, and instead of having the well-defined plaques that most dermatologists would agree look like psoriasis, this patient began to develop nodules on the skin. And then when that nodule was biopsied is when the whole picture became clear that this wasn't a patient with psoriasis, but rather a patient with mycosis fungoides, as Francine mentioned, the most common variant, who had actually moved from a patch and plaque stage to a tumor stage. And it was at that point that the diagnosis was made and the patient was referred to our Vanderbilt University Cutaneous Lymphoma Clinic. And by the way, it did well. We're fortunate to have some treatments for even slightly more advanced patients. Another example of that, Ken, is a patient who might come in with a diffuse erythematous type of a rash. And oftentimes, these are thought to be drug eruptions or perhaps allergic reactions. Oftentimes, it takes a while for that to really become manifest. And in the primary care setting, those patients may have topical steroids and maybe courses of systemic steroids. And eventually, they find their way either to a dermatologist or in more rare instances, they may find their way to a medical oncologist if in fact they develop lymphadenopathy. So in broad terms, what should primary care doctors, dermatologists, all of us sort of look for that will distinguish patients who've really got a more serious cancer diagnosis? Yeah, I'll take that question, Ken. I think it's really important for dermatologists and dermatologists in training our residents to realize that many of the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas can mimic common skin diseases. And primary care physicians who are also treating skin disease uh, need to know that if you have a patient that's not responding to first and second line therapies, that a skin biopsy is probably indicated. There are outstanding dermatologists that are also missing this diagnosis, and it's because sometimes the presentation, the itching, the primary lesions, a patch which is flat or a plaque which is slightly thickened, can really end up mimicking some common skin diseases. And often the patient themselves will confront their physician and say, look, I'm not really getting better despite these treatments, is there anything else that should be considered? So I think it's just important to keep an open mind. I think if there's, in general, any skin disease that's not responding to first and second line therapies, that a skin biopsy can be helpful. And I should mention that when a skin biopsy is done in a patient with suspected cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, it's important to do more than one biopsy because it's also 
and can be a challenging diagnosis to make even under the microscope. So if you expect the pathologist to make the diagnosis, it really is a clinical path correlation. And that's why we have some outstanding cutaneous lymphoma clinics throughout the United States where these patients that get a biopsy that shows an atypical lymphocytic infiltrate, how it might be helpful for them to go to a cutaneous lymphoma clinic to see experts who have seen many patients with these diseases to get the best management. So I want to ask both of you, a patient is sent to you, you've got a diagnosis, what's the workup for patients and how does that reflect the biology? So actually the workup is defined in the NCCN guidelines and I think this is really a great source for folks in the audience who don't see this disease very often. But generally speaking, our initial workup is that for a lymphoma. So we look for other sites of involvement. We do careful mapping of the skin using a, a tool that we call the MSWAT, where we characterize the type of lesions on the skin. We then oftentimes will get some imaging studies, uh, either a CAT scan or a PET scan, as part of the initial workup to look for lymphadenopathy, for instance. We also get various blood tests, in particular flow cytometry, to determine whether there are circulating malignant cells. And generally speaking, we don't get a bone marrow biopsy. So this is one of the things that my patients ask me about. You don't need a bone marrow biopsy unless you have other evidence of advanced disease or blood involvement. And also, I would just say John maybe wants to comment on the patient with very limited skin disease, because even within our group of experts, there's some controversy about how much you need to do for those patients, those T1 patients. Yeah, thank you, Francine. So the T1 patients are those with either patches or plaques that occupy less than 10% of the body surface area. And fortunately, probably three quarters of patients with mycosis fungoides will present with that stage. I believe the data are good to suggest that imaging studies are really not indicated unless there are palpable lymph nodes on physical exam. But we do move forward and get some of the same blood work that Francine mentioned, including, although it can be somewhat controversial, the expensive flow cytometry test on peripheral blood, because there are some patients with limited skin disease that may have blood involvement or the suggestion of evolving significant blood involvement that we want to identify early on. Let me ask both of you if you were to go over the subclassifications, because this is a great time to be tutored in this. And again, maybe an example of the patient with each one. And then after that, we'll start talking about what to do about T-cell lymphoma in general, and again, some of the latest advances that were just presented. So tell us a little bit more about subclassifications as it applies to your patients. Yeah, I'll be happy to start with how most early stage patients present. And by early stage, we do mean patients that have patches and plaques on their skin, certainly less than 70 to 80% body surface area. And although they can have palpable lymph nodes, if they're biopsied, they're reactive. And so it's only when patients develop tumor nodules, which is defined as kind of a dome-shaped solid growth on the skin greater than a centimeter in size, or lymph node or blood involvement, then become advanced. So the typical patient with very early stage disease, stage 1A, would be a patient that might have scattered patches on the buttocks that they've had slowly evolving over five to 10 years. And it's because of a recent biopsy that the diagnosis was suggested and then ultimately made. 
there are other patients that might present with scattered plaques. Those are slightly raised, well-defined plaques, as I discussed earlier, that might mimic psoriasis. And again, another recent biopsy shows that they have involvement with mycosis fungoides. And then there are those patients that might have patches and plaques all over their skin that now have palpable lymph nodes, but on biopsy, and I'll defer to Francine to discuss the type of biopsy, those lymph nodes are shown to be reactive and not filled with the atypical lymphocytes. So those are the early stage patients, and I'll turn it over to Francine to discuss the more advanced patients. Thank you, John. And you made an excellent point that I just want to elaborate on, and that is the issue of the lymph nodes. A lot of our patients get really scared when we tell them you have a lymph node on the scan or we can feel a small lymph node, when in fact, most of our patients will have these small reactive lymph nodes that don't really mean that there's cancer involved in the node. So I try to reassure uh, the patients that the lymph node involvement really needs to be defined before you really get concerned about it. So how do we define the quality of that lymph node involvement? We need to actually get a biopsy. So we have a threshold of size above which we consider the node potentially pathogenic and we would get a biopsy, and that's anywhere from 1.5 to 2 centimeters. The types of biopsies that we like to have are a core needle biopsy or actually an excisional biopsy. A fine needle aspirate is not sufficient to tell us whether that lymph node is involved. So preferably, we would try to get core needle biopsies, which are really non-invasive, relatively easy to get for many of our patients. Or if we can't get a core needle biopsy or the sample isn't adequate and the node is accessible, say in the groin or in the neck, we may get an excisional biopsy. So the lymph node involvement is important when we start thinking about more advanced stage disease. And then we start thinking about more aggressive systemic therapies. We also, of course, pay attention to blood involvement. And for blood involvement, we now have defined the quality and quantity of cells in the blood. And we determine that by flow cytometry as well as by molecular studies. So above a certain threshold, which is what we call B2, we determine that that patient really has significant blood involvement. At a very low level, B0, the blood involvement is either absent or the cells are very few. However, many of our patients fall into this B1 category, which is in between the best and the worst. And it's difficult to really know what to do with that. There's differences in the literature about how you manage those patients. But one of the things that came up at our meeting is just reviewing a series that looked at that B1 group of patients and found that it wasn't necessary to change your course of therapy if you took into consideration the lymph node involvement and the skin involvement and you followed the blood involvement. So basically there's a, a complex of different components that we take into consideration with more advanced disease. Most of these patients, of course, will come to me from John. So the dermatologist will see them initially and will administer the first you know, one or two tiers of therapy. Then when patients become refractory or they develop these big lymph nodes or they develop blood involvement, then they'll be passed on to the hematology oncology clinic. So if you can, tell us a little bit about biology. John, I found it interesting, you know, to think about patients with this evolving over years. So it's an indolent process. To put it very plainly, what's wrong with those cells? Is this a disease where there's, you don't get apoptosis? Is this a proliferative disease? What causes it? That's the million-dollar question. We still do not know 
what the potential triggers are that lead to the development of one of the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. That's not to say we're not working on it. From epidemiologic studies, we haven't identified a group of patients with one or more particular exposures to toxins and other things that may be triggering the disease and the transformation from, we have data to identify that the malignant cell in mycosis fungoides is a resident memory T cell. And this is a cell that's just sitting in our skin waiting for antigen. It's not a cell that recently came into the skin, but we do believe that it is a T cell that's resident in the skin that becomes malignant. And so it makes sense to think about maybe exposure to particular antigens or interactions in the microenvironment that might be triggering transformation. Cesare syndrome is a, a certainly a different disease than mycosis fungoides, where instead of a resident memory T cell, it's a central memory T cell, a T cell that has the ability to transit in and out of the skin in and out of lymph nodes, and then spend a large amount of its time in the blood. And therefore, treatments are likely to be different for these diseases. But we haven't figured it out. Francine, would you like to comment on that? Well, there's lots of molecular studies that are being done nowadays, looking at the genes and looking at patterns of gene expression to try to identify patterns that may be pathognomonic or specific for mycosis fagoides. And right now, I would have to say that there are a panoply of different mutations that have been identified, some of them more common in more advanced stage patients. So mutations by themselves may be driving the disease, but the other important component that we're realizing is that the microenvironment is critical. So the microenvironment produces various factors and growth factors, as well as various kinds of physical interactions with the T cells that stimulate them and allow the disease to progress. Some of our treatments, in fact, are targeting the microenvironment. And interestingly, and uh, John can talk a little bit more about this as well, is one of the things that I learned at the USCLC workshop this year is how some of the common drugs that we use that we think about targeting the tumor cells actually are also acting specifically on various cells in the microenvironment. So it's really a very complex picture. All right, so let me ask you, You've given us sort of a background, a good background. So how is that translating into therapy? And when we talk about MF, for example, what were each of you sort of most excited about at the meeting this year? Thanks. There were many things that I was excited about. The good news for early stage patients is we have quite a few skin-directed therapies that appear to be highly effective. And because they have a better prognosis, we tolerate a low level of disease in some of those patients' skin. But it's the advanced patients that we have been most concerned about. And therefore, when we see opportunities to help those patients, we get most excited. Austin Kirshner from my institution at Vanderbilt told us that there are data now from multiple institutions that low-dose total skin electron beam radiotherapy can help many of our patients with mycosis fungoides with very tolerable side effects because it's a low-dose regimen rather than the intermediate to high dose. And let me define low-dose is defined as 12 gray, whereas in the past, 36 or higher gray were given to these patients, resulting in many, many more side effects. I was also excited to hear 
some updated information about an oral agent, bexerotene, and this ties into what Francine mentioned, this idea of bexerotene affecting not only the proliferating cancer cells because it has anti-proliferative effects, but this oral retinoid bexerotene affecting the tumor microenvironment and uh, specifically uh, CCL22 that's responsible for affecting trafficking in the skin. And, and those were the, some of the first two things that come to mind. Francine? So I uh, actually was excited about two things, one of which are novel targeted therapies, and the other was the CAR-T story that's evolving in cutaneous lymphoma. So in terms of thinking about targeted therapies, it's nice that the T cells in MF and Cesare syndrome express markers that we can use to target therapies. Of course, brentuximab, vidodin targets CD30, but what was most interesting is learning a little bit about the biology of how that targeted therapy works in patients with MF that had a very low level of CD30 expression. And it may in fact be that the expression of CD30 in the, in the microenvironment basically hijacks the drug and then has the drug deliver the toxin moiety to the tumor cell in a very complex way. So that was very interesting. Another novel target was the KIR 3DL2, which is actually an NK marker that's expressed on Cesare cells. There's also a novel antibody that's directed against this marker that's very highly effective in blood involvement in Cesare syndrome. And then there's the IL-2 fusion protein ONTAC, which has a new name, E7777. And again, we know that this molecule not only targets T cells, but also can target immunoregulatory T cells in the microenvironment. So it can affect the disease in two different ways. And we're now hearing a little bit more about the PI3 kinase inhibitors, that class of drugs just getting approved in T cell lymphoma with an ongoing study with duvalizib about to be completed. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how that combines with, with some of these other agents. But the thing that I think is most exciting to all of us is this whole CAR-T field where we engineer T cells to go after the tumor cells. And we heard about two different types of CAR-Ts, one of them the CD30 targeted CAR, where a patient's own cells are armed to go after the CD30 expression. But the other thing I think that is most interesting and is a study that we have open at Yale is the allogeneic CAR, which targets CD70. So these are basically allogeneic T cells which are engineered to go after the CD7 epitope and also engineered so that your body will not reject them. So these cells can be given to anybody. They're literally off the shelf CAR T cells. And this is a very exciting technology already showing promise in patients with MF and Cesare syndrome. So I gotta say that the last thing you just sort of, I feel like you saved the best the last. <laughs> that, uh, that is pretty amazing. So I, all right, I'd like to dissect this a, a little bit more. Let's go back to ONTAC because I feel like that's been around for a little while, but what's the mechanism of action? And with any of these drugs we're gonna talk about, I'd love a little history. Where did they come from? What was the first iteration of these and, and where are we going with them? Well, I think with, with ONTAC, that's, probably the first drug that was FDA approved for MF Cesare syndrome, that targets the interleukin-2 receptor, and it's basically a drug that will introduce a toxin into those cells to directly kill those cells. It turns out that a lot of our patients with MF and Cesare syndrome do express the IL-2 receptor on the malignant cells, but it's also expressed on normal T cells. 
and immunoregulatory T cells. So the drug works by targeting the tumor cells, but also targeting the normal microenvironment. The newer generation of that drug is more purified and has better pharmacodynamic properties, but pretty much has the same side effects, which can include what we call vascular leak or peripheral edema and low blood pressure and some elevation of liver function tests. But we've used these drugs now long enough and had trials ongoing long enough that we really know how to manage those side effects. Let me ask you about brentuximab because that's one that a general medical oncologist like myself are using in other malignancies. So again, where has that been and where's that going, essentially that field of targeting CD30? So brentuximab targets the CD30 epitope, which again is highly expressed, particularly if there's a condition called large cell transformation or tumor stage MF. And this drug, again, is also a toxin, so it carries a weapon, so to speak, to directly kill the tumor cells. Now, what we've noticed in a number of earlier trials with brentuximab is that there are patients with very low expression or even absent expression of CD30 that do respond to this drug. So, you know, when we're thinking about using this drug in clinical practice, one of the questions that comes up is, do I need to measure the level of CD30? Should I get my pathologist to do immunohistochemistry and tell me what is the level of expression? And is that going to affect my decision to treat this patient? And I'd be interested in hearing John's opinion on this, because I think here, this is still an area of controversy. Uh, Some of us would say this is an expensive drug, and so I want to make sure the patient's going to benefit. So in the ideal world, I'd like to have a certain level of CD30 expression, which for some people is 10% or greater. But I've certainly had those patients who've had lower expression or no expression who've responded. So John, in your world, what do you use as a cutoff? That's a great question, Francine, and there were data presented at the uh, meeting showing that even with less than 5% expression of CD30, a third of the patients showed an overall response. Now, the converse is also true, that if you have more than 5% of your CD30 cells expressing CD30, you can expect response rates over 70%. So there clearly is some correlation to CD30 expression. But Brentuximab and Yun Kim, who presented this data at the meeting from Stanford, she emphasized that there still is such a strength in in this drug in helping our patients with very thick plaques and widespread tumors. Those are patients with widespread skin disease. This is a drug that we do often turn to at our cutaneous lymphoma clinics. And so I just echo what Francine said, that this is a drug that we're lucky to have in our armamentarium. So another thing, Ken, to bring up about these targeted therapies is the concept that if you've used it once and patients progressed, that you may not ever be able to use it again. And that may be true for cytotoxic chemotherapy and solid tumors, but it's proving not to be true for us for many of the drugs that we use, because we do see this cycling up and down of the level of of receptor expression. And certainly, you know, we've all seen patients who may have plateaued or perhaps had their best response a year or so ago, come back to these drugs and in fact have a response again. So I think you need to think longitudinally about these drugs and not ever feel that you've shut off completely one of these treatment options. Again, that's where it may be important to go back and look at the level of receptor expression. So I want to go back to the concept of targeted therapy, next generation sequencing. It's shown us many targets that we didn't necessarily expect 
it was interesting hearing about PI3 kinase. Any other molecular targets that, again, you're excited about and that open up some opportunity to treat patients? I'd love to take the first crack at this because Jay Choi from Northwestern presented some really interesting data. There's a subclass of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas that are cytotoxic T-cell lymphomas. It includes primary cutaneous aggressive epidermotropic T-cell lymphoma and a few others. And Jay was able to show that at least their cohort at Northwestern, that most if not all of these patients showed mutations in JAK-STAT signaling. And there were also some kinase fusion proteins that were present in the cytotoxic T-cell lymphomas predominantly expressing in the skin and presented evidence that, that could be a target for us using some of the JAK-STAT inhibitors that are available now when we see patients with these more aggressive cytotoxic cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. Very interesting. Francine? I think we also talked about CD47 and the whole eat me, don't eat me pathway that's important for many different types of tumors. Francine, eat me, don't eat me. So you got to explain that if you would. <laughs> Well, basically, your macrophages would love to eat tumor cells and get rid of them, attack them because they're foreign. They express tumor antigens, but there are various kind of blockades to that signal that the macrophage would get. And so we know that the CD47 pathway is relevant with that signal. So now we have anti-CD47 antibodies and other ways of targeting CD47 that appear to be important and relevant for patients with cutaneous lymphoma, like other types of cancers as well. And there are studies now where, and we heard a little bit about this at the meeting, where these therapies are administered directly into the tumor lesions of patients with MF so that we can study in very specific detail how they work and what those interactions are. And I think we've learned a tremendous amount about this pathway and its relevance from our ability to do these kinds of studies in patients with cutaneous lymphoma because we can access those tumors directly. You know, I wanna ask you very broadly, in some diseases, the goal of treatment is cured. In others, it's more palliative. What is the case in cutaneous lymphoma? Are there patients who are cured? Are there patients in long-term remission? Is that rare? And what's your view, uh, sort of looking at some of the new therapies that we're talking about? So that is a very good question. And if you look across many of our clinical trials, there's about 10 to 15% of patients that never relapse. And in fact, I've had some of those patients with Cesare syndrome, with romadepsin, and some recently with mogamolizumab, and some with brentuximab, and I'm sure John maybe has some as well. But by and large, most of our patients do undergo stage-wise progression. And so, at least in my world, when we talk about cure, we're thinking, you know, in these more advanced stage patients about a measure like a CAR-T, if that's available. And I hope that that's more available in the future than it is right now. But right now, what we have available is allogeneic stem cell transplant. And we're really just now starting to see some tremendous success um, because we're able to do these transplants with less morbidity and mortality, we're able to do haplotransplants, we have better conditioning regimens, and we're transplanting patients earlier in the course of their disease. So certainly, allogeneic transplant, albeit an extreme measure, is one way to cure patients. But I think we need to remind ourselves uh, that there are still patients that can be cured 
with these conventional therapies. I agree, Francine, that there are some patients that show long, perhaps many decades long, rates of remission, and we should be studying them more closely to find out why, because some of these patients can go into complete remission with skin-directed therapies, such as localized radiation or topical mechlorethamine application. So I am in the habit of telling most of my patients that we are unlikely to cure your disease, but we do have many treatments that are likely to help us control it. And the most predominant symptoms that these patients suffer from is itching. And that's one of our primary goals, is to get at least that symptom under control, and then as best as we can to reduce the burden of their uh, disease within their skin and other compartments. You know, finally, as we sort of wrap up, I want to go back to aloe transplant. What a fascinating concept. So these cells are engineered, the CAR-Ts are engineered to not be rejected and not cause GBH. I want to make sure I understand. So with the CD70 CAR cells, they are engineered using CRISPR technology to basically get rid of the epitopes that would allow HLA recognition so that you can pretty much put these cells into anybody and they won't be rejected. So that's a major step forward because as you know, in order to get a CAR T-cell therapy, you have to donate your T-cells, which get shipped off to a lab where they get engineered molecularly to express the CAR T-cell epitope. Then they get shipped back and get injected into the patient. So that's a very complicated procedure and it takes time. It takes several weeks. The allogeneic technology allows us to bring a patient in, give them some lymphodepleting therapy for a couple of days, and pretty much choose whatever day of the week we want to give them the CAR T-cells. And that's particularly helpful if you have very rapidly progressive disease and you can't wait a couple of weeks to get the T-cells engineered. So I have to say that, uh, I mean, very exciting. And it obviously makes me think, and probably a lot of us think about what else could it be used for the technology. I wanted to ask you about two other things. One is sort of novel toxicities. My understanding is that there are some to the therapies that these new therapies, morganulusumab, what is it and what are some of the novel toxicities that I hear are interesting? Yeah, well, thank you, Ken. Mogamaluzumab is a monoclonal antibody to CCR4, and CCR4 happens to be expressed on many T cells, but in particular, the malignant T cells of both mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome. It's kind of like a zip code that destines that T cell to enter the skin compartment, but also gives it the ability to also circulate through lymph nodes. And so mogamaluzumab in the Maverick study was shown to be quite effective in treating patients with Cesare syndrome, the leukemic form of cutaneous T cell lymphoma. And what we've learned since it was released approximately four to five years ago, is that about 30% of patients develop a rash, the mogamaluzumab-associated rash, or MAR, M-A-R. And what's interesting about this rash is the patients could have entered a complete remission. Now, all of a sudden, they have a rash. And the rash can be very difficult to distinguish from their previous cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. 
it could present as a morbilliform rash, psoriasis-like rash, it could be in only photo-accentuated areas, and mimic even some common diseases like seborrheic dermatitis. So we have more data now on this rash, and we have some tips on how to distinguish it from the original cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. For instance, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is usually in more sun-protected areas. So when you have a sun-exposed distribution, that should be one indication that it might be this mogamaluzumab-associated rash. But I also wanted to mention, because mogamaluzumab ends up depleting uh, T-suppressor cells, it can cause the same type of immune reactions in the skin that some checkpoint inhibitors can. And analogous to checkpoint inhibitor immune-related side effects having a better prognosis for patients who don't have it, the same is true for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, which are new data. And that is patients who have the mogamaluzumab-associated rash have an overall response rate in one study out of Harvard of almost 90% as compared to only a 50% response rate in those without the rash. So I just wanted to add that the rash can be confusing, but it also, once identified as the mogamaluzumab-associated rash, portends a more excellent prognosis. I have to say, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me in talking to the two of you is, in a sense, how many hints or pieces of information we, you, get about the normal immune system through studying the biology of the immune system. So it's very, very interesting. Finally, let me ask you about disparities, about, about delivery of care in the United States. Do people of color, do African-Americans have the same outcomes as others, as Caucasians, with the same set of diseases? So, Ken, this is an issue that we very seriously wanted to address over the last couple of years as there's some earlier data suggesting that perhaps African-American patients don't do as well with our various therapies and have more advanced disease at presentation. So our colleague, Pam Allen, who's at Emory, has gotten together a large group of investigators from multiple institutions and is conducting a retrospective study that was actually presented in part at ASH this year, where she was addressing outcomes based on various factors such as age and race. And what she found in the advanced stage patients, early on at least, is that in the modern era with some of these new therapies that we're talking about, it appears as though African-Americans had the same outcome as Caucasian patients. I would also like to echo that I presented a study on EPOC, which is an aggressive chemotherapy regimen at the meeting. And we also had similar findings that our African-American patients, who by the way, comprised half of our study, actually had the same outcomes in terms of response. Now, this is an ongoing study and we're still trying to collect data and we'll be looking at this for the next couple of years. And one of the other things that we're interested in looking at as a secondary study is actually access to care and what we call healthcare intelligence. So how much information is out there? What information can folks access? And how does that really impact the kind of care that they get? And I think that's a critical question in a disease like MF and Cesare, where as John points out, patients have to be educated uh, in addition and referring physicians have to be educated because this can be mimicking so many different things and patients take a while to even get to us. So I think these are going to be very important studies as we look to the future and how we manage these diseases. Yeah, thank you very much. One final question. I'll throw this one to John, but tell us a little bit about USCLC. 
Yeah, so the United States Cutaneous Lymphoma Consortium is the only organization in North America that brings together both dermatologists, hematologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists together in one organization with the goal of improving the diagnosis and management of patients with all cutaneous lymphomas, including the cutaneous B-cell lymphomas that we haven't talked about today. And so we encourage our listeners uh, to consider joining the organization to learn more about it. We sponsor an annual workshop, uh, which we've just been discussing. There are also other opportunities. I'll let Francine mention some of the other new opportunities for members. So we also have a registry, which I think is going to be critical for patients and also for physicians because the referring physicians can enter their patients into this registry. We can collect data and that can be useful for us in the future as we do various research projects. There is no registry in the United States to date for these patients, so I think that's critical. The other initiative that we have is that we're initiating a series of tumor boards where a group of experts will get on a Zoom meeting together and talk about a case. We're hoping that that will segue into a format where our community members can actually send in a case and we can discuss it like a real live tumor board. And I think this is a way of reaching out to many of our centers that don't see very many of these patients and would benefit from the expertise of people like John, myself, and many of our other colleagues who are in the organization. Wonderful. Actually, that's a great model, honestly, for care of, especially for malignancies that are less common, where dissemination of the tremendous knowledge that some have, like yourself, is really valuable for everybody. So I want to thank you. And let me tell you who I'm thanking for the listeners. Dr. Francine Foss, again, is a professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine and Dr. John Zick, who is a professor of dermatology and a leader at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. So Francine and John, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. It's been my pleasure. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this informative episode. For a list of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.